afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. And this is Ken in the first Friday of 2023, January the 6th, reading from the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And I am pleased to be here again with you. And we'll begin with our first piece from Above the Fold of the Friday, January 6th edition of the TH. Search broadens for missing man coming out of Platteville. Efforts continue to find a man missing from Platteville one month after his sudden disappearance. The Grant County Sheriff's Department announced Thursday that officers are preparing to do another aerial and ground search in the next week for Ronald Henry, 34, who was reported missing from rural Platteville on December 7th. Sheriff Nate Dreckman said the department also enlisted the help of Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation to conduct interviews this week with about 10 people who knew or had contact with Henry in the area. Information from those interviews is being reviewed now. It's an ongoing investigation, Dreckman said. It's a continuous process that's going to go on until we run out of leads or he's found. Authorities said Henry was staying at a home on Conjury Road in rural Platteville when it was noticed on December 5th that he was no longer there. Friends and family members have been unable to contact him since, and a missing persons alert was issued two days later. Family members described Henry as a kind person and loving father to his son, Ronald Jr., adding that it was very out of the norm for him to go so long without contacting anyone. Most of his family lives in the Milwaukee area, and he was there in late November before heading to Platteville. When I call, he doesn't just say, Hello, Mom. He always goes, Hello, beautiful. And he always ends a call with, I love you, or by making me laugh, said Henry's mother, Tanya McKinney. He's a very happy person. Henry's aunt, Leilani, Jacobs said Henry used to live in Platteville and was familiar with the area. She said he was in town early last month to do some work on a farm in rural Platteville at which he had helped out several times before. Given the inability to contact him, family members are concerned foul play was involved in his disappearance. Jacobs said Henry was planning to return to Milwaukee by mid-December to be home in time for the holidays with his family. She added that he also had tickets to a December 19th home game for the Green Bay Packers, one of his favorite teams. He told me, Auntie, I've never actually been to a real football game in my life and I'm so excited, she said. I know he wouldn't have missed that game for anything. Jacobs and McKinney expressed frustration with the speed and frequency of communication from the involved authorities. McKinney said that he, she had not heard from any law enforcement about her son's disappearance and instead received information from other family members who had contact with the sheriff's department. 
Dreckman said keeping family members informed is a top priority, but that the department needs to be careful about when and what information is released to make sure it can follow up on leads appropriately. He also said the department usually will establish one family member as a family liaison in ongoing cases, which in Henry's case is a stepbrother. Since Henry's disappearance, the Grant County Sheriff's Department has undertaken a large-scale search of the area he was last seen. The department has used drones, a helicopter from University of Dubuque's aviation program, and canines to search about 300 acres. The new search will overlap with some of the areas already covered in previous searches and expand outward from there by probably two or three times, Trekman said, adding that he couldn't think of a search of this size in recent memory. He added that the aerial search should begin this week with help from the State Emergency Management Department with ground searches to follow next week once the manpower is available. The circumstances around Henry's disappearance still are unclear, so Dreckman said the office is treating it with the utmost urgency. We would treat every missing persons case like this, he said. We're doing everything we can, and we're pooling all the resources we can for a productive outcome. Jacobs said she hoped those efforts will lead to some answers for family members who had to face both the Christmas and New Year's holidays without knowing Henry's whereabouts or if he was safe. She added that she hopes anyone with information will consider the family's pain and reach out with what they know. We need closure. My sister needs closure, Jacobs said. His son misses his dad. We just all want to know what happened to our loved one. Anyone with information on Henry's whereabouts should call the Sheriff's Department at 608-723-2157 or Grant County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-789-6600. Our next piece from above the fold, Workforce, Workforce, Workforce. Business Leaders Thursday yet again asked state lawmakers to help bolster workforce in Iowa by taking action in their upcoming legislative session. The comments came during Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce's annual legislative session kickoff event. Lawmakers shared a wide range of options to address the chamber's top priority from loosening restrictions on youth employees to making the state more friendly to immigrants. Area Republican lawmakers, who will have an even greater majority in both chambers this year, thanks to last year's election, also said the session would focus on significant tax reforms for the third straight year. Chamber President and CEO Molly Grover referred to U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics figures that showed 113,000 job openings in Iowa last fall as evidence of the business community's need for help when it comes to workforce. A lack of available workers continues to be the biggest barrier for the area businesses, she told lawmakers during the event attended by about 100 people at Hotel Julian Dubuque. 
The lawmaker panel featured Iowa Senators Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque, and Carrie Colker, Republican Dyersville, and Iowa Representatives Chuck Eisenhart, Dubuque, Democrat, Lindsey James, Dubuque Democrat, Shannon Lundgren, Republican Piasta, and Steve Bradley, Republican Cascade. Colker attended virtually from a conference in Texas. Lundgren, again, will chair the Iowa House of Representatives Commerce Committee and will have significant control over business policy. She said one strategy she would pursue is deregulating the jobs that youth workers could take. We put a lot of restrictions on our children who are probably capable of doing a lot of jobs. Think of using a pizza dough roller or running a hotel laundry machine, she said. We've got a lot of children who are definitely mature enough to do some of those jobs, but we do not let them. Eisenhart praised the state's community colleges as a crucial workforce development tool, but said the state and nation needed to change the way it welcomes immigrants to address workforce needs. I don't think there is much hope in rebuilding our population ourselves, he said. We need to look to immigration. Historically, that is how this nation has grown its workforce. There needs to be concerted attention on how to bring them here this session. Colker and Bradley both touted Republicans' income tax cuts of last year as a way to retain and attract workers. Our tax plan is going to be bringing people into Iowa who see the momentum, Colker said. Yoakum urged increased investment in quality of life improvements. We need to retain workers we have and find ways to attract younger and new people to our state, she said. That includes that we have affordable and accessible health care, that we have affordable housing, a clean environment, good wages. Yoakum also said Iowa needed to create a stepped-down reduction of financial assistance programs for parents to avoid what is known as the cliff effect in which parents earn their way past qualification thresholds for assistance and so drop out of the workforce. The chamber also requested increased state investments in child care assistance programs to help keep parents in the workforce. James said those programs were a must if Iowa hopes to attract workers from outside, referencing her own experience. We sat on a wait list for my youngest child for a year, she said. That meant I stayed home until we could get a spot. There are people who want to work but cannot because they can't afford child care. The chamber also prioritized a range of tax preferences, lauding Republicans' 2022 reform reducing the corporate tax rate. A chief priority was protecting any efforts to alter the tax increment financing program, where incremental increases to property values are rebated to local governments and developers. It has been widely used in Dubuque County. Colker, though, said that with Iowans still reeling from sustained increasing inflation in recent years, all programs would be on the table as the majority considered future tax reform. It's probably going to look at all of the tax credits and all of the things, she said. At the end of the day, we need to give Iowans relief. 
Another priority for the chamber was returning service by a major commercial airline to Dubuque Regional Airport after American Airlines ended service from there to Chicago last year. Ultra-low-cost carrier Avilo Airlines will offer direct flights between Dubuque and Orlando International Airport on Wednesdays and Saturdays starting on January 11th, but not the daily flights to a major hub the airport previously had. Bradley, who lives in the portion of Cascade that falls in the Jones County, only technically represents part of Dubuque County until Monday, January 9th. At that time, his new district will cover all of Jones County and most of Jackson County, other than the southwest corner and the city of Makokata. But he promised to be a fierce advocate for the airport due to the close ties. I will do anything to increase ridership out of Dubuque and to get a new carrier, he said. I am a flight instructor and private pilot and love the Dubuque airport. Now we have our third and final front page piece, Report, Dubuque's Black Heritage Extensive, Little Known. And it's accompanied with a large picture looking down across some houses down a street. Uh, And the caption beneath the picture reads, In 1934, much of Dubuque's black population lived in homes along 8th Street, Among them were Dr. Henry and Maddie Martin, Theatrice Gibbs family, the Scott family, and the Mags and Mason Johnson family. And here is our article. In 1868, the Iowa Supreme Court issued a verdict allowing for the integration of the state's schools, but nearly 10 years after the ruling, they remained segregated in Dubuque. It is one of the many historic facts recently uncovered by the city's Black Heritage Survey, which aims to provide an extensive history of Dubuque's black residents. While research for the survey is not expected to be completed until mid-2023, City staff this week reported the highlights so far to city council members and outlined how the project intends to tell the story of Dubuque's black heritage in the future. We want to learn as much as we can about the way that black history informs Dubuque's history, said Chris Happ Olson, assistant planner for Dubuque and project lead for the survey. Our goal is to weave that history back into the narrative of Dubuque. Work on the Black Heritage Survey started in February after the city secured $30,000 from the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs Historic Resource Development Program for the project. The city contributed 18000 Part of that funding went toward hiring consultant Wapsie Valley Archaeology to assist with the research. Unlike other historical surveys that prioritize digging into the history of specific structures, Olson said the Black History Survey focused on telling the specific stories of black people in Dubuque. They include Nathaniel and Charlotte Morgan, the earliest black settlers of Dubuque who moved to the community in 1839, 
and Theatrice Gibbs, who attended Dubuque Senior High School in 1934 and is believed to be the first black captain of a high school football team in an integrated school in the U.S. Anthony Allen, president of the Dubuque branch of the NAACP, said highlighting previously unheralded black residents helps give black people living in Dubuque today a better sense of belonging in the community. It adds a lot when a young black child can see the terminal at the airport is named after someone that looks like them, Allen said, referencing the Captain Robert L. Martin Terminal at Dubuque Regional Airport, named after the black World War II fighter pilot and Dubuque native. When we see those heroes, that is testimony to the fact that we belong here. Olson said much of the work will highlight the historically black 19th century neighborhood around West 8th Street. Along with the city's work, several other volunteers and local organizations are helping flesh out the history. One of those partners, Loris College Center for Dubuque History, conducted research and wrote multiple articles on black students who attended the college, such as Greg Rhodes, who quit the college's basketball team in 1968 after refusing to comply with the college's athletic policy that required him to shave his facial hair. That decision led the college to form a committee to review the policy, and it ultimately was changed in the following academic year. The center's director, Heidi Pettit, said, The survey is filling the gaps of Dubuque's memory in regard to its black residents. The full history of Dubuque is very important to us, she said. While the survey highlights the successes of black Dubuqueers, It also explores the stories of racism and segregation that are embedded in the city's history, including a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century and the implementation of restrictive covenants in housing developments designed to prevent black families from moving into them. Olson said, The project so far has been a success, but there are stories that remain untold. We know the story of what Dubuque schools were like before they were integrated, but we now need to see what it was like when segregated schools were closed and students were now going to ward schools, Olson said. We are still researching that. Along with completing the research, Olson said project coordinators are exploring ways to efficiently and accessibly share survey findings. Late last year, the city unveiled an online web tool that provided a geographic information systems story map to detail some of the history of black Dubuque residents. Olson added that the city is exploring the development of a mobile app that will allow residents to take a walking tour of the city and visit the sites that are most important to Dubuque's black heritage. It would be a great way to show so much of that history that has been lost, Olson said. People could hear the children of Robert Martin talk about him as they stand in front of his house on Hill Street. City council members voiced their enthusiasm for the project this week. Council member David Resnick said the survey sheds light on the important role of the black people played in shaping the community, 
He said, a lot of Dubuque residents think in terms of us and them. This survey proves a lot of people have been us for a long time, and they belong here, he said. And they have a long tradition here, and they have contributed to the community. Now we turn to our news from Dubuque and the Tri-States. And at the top of the fold, we have Dubuque teen sentenced to 31 years for burglaries. A Dubuque teen recently was sentenced to 31 years in prison for a slew of burglaries. Tristan M. Smith, 19, was sentenced in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County by Judge Monica Zunri Ackley on multiple cases, mostly involving burglaries. In all but one of those cases, Smith previously had been sentenced to probation, but the probation now has been revoked and prison time ordered, with all sentences set to be served consecutively. In the most recent case, which triggered the probation revocation, Smith faced charges of 16 counts of third-degree burglary as a repeat offender and one count each of possession of a firearm by a domestic abuse offender and second-degree theft. Court documents state that police officers investigating a recent string of vehicle burglaries executed a search warrant on October 9th at Smith's residence. Smith was located in the attic of the residence, along with a large number of stolen property items, including gift cards, driver's licenses, debit cards, and social security cards. Officers also located a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun and drug paraphernalia, documents state. Smith also was accused of attempting to break into a home on Windsor Avenue in October 2021. As part of a plea deal, he pleaded guilty to four counts of third-degree burglary and the weapons charge, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. The remainder of his sentence came from him violating his probation in a slew of cases and being sentenced to prison time now. Smith was sentenced to 10 years in prison for five other cases, including one in which he pleaded guilty in August 2021 to second-degree burglary. That case related to him stealing a bicycle from the garage of a residence in the 1600 block of Lorry Street and items from a vehicle in the 1800 block of Sarah Street. In relation to two other cases, Smith was sentenced to 10 years in prison when his probation was revoked. The case included one in which he previously was convicted of second-degree and third-degree burglary in October 2021, related to numerous vehicle burglaries in Dubuque. The remaining six years of the sentence relate to at least four other cases, mainly involving burglaries, where his probation was revoked. Our next piece, tax assistance programs short of volunteers. Two local tax assistance programs oriented toward the elderly, low- and moderate-income households, and English-as-a-second-language speakers face a deficit of volunteers. Tax season will begin this month for volunteer programs, including the Internal Revenue Service's Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program and AARP Foundation's Tax Aid. But Dubuque area and Grant County, Wisconsin program leaders report shortages in help. 
with 15 volunteers and three Hawkeye Area Community Action Program staff. Dubuque's VITA program is 8 to 10 people short of the number of tax preparers officials hoped to have for the tax season, according to Beverly Moss, Community Projects Coordinator at HACAP, which administers VITA. The program serves households making less than $58,000 per year, people with disabilities, and limited English speakers in Dubuque, Delaware, and Jackson counties in Iowa. This year, VITA planned to add an in-person site for tax returns at St. Matthew Lutheran Church, but now leadership is concerned about having enough tax, tax preparers. Grant County Tax Aid Site Coordinator Virgil Pufal reported his program expected to have only five or six tax repairs on hand at its Platteville and Lancaster locations, compared to nine or ten in 2019. Tax Aid will serve anyone but focuses on low and moderate income seniors. Tax aid has seen a decline in service in Wisconsin and nationwide in past years. Richard Blackburn, Wisconsin State Tax Aid Coordinator, said the number of tax aid volunteers has declined by 40% since early 2020. Nationwide, tax aid helped file 822,000 returns in 2022, compared to 1.6 million at its 2019 peak. The IRS and AARP programs offer essentially the same service, but to the point that the two share training materials and direct potential clients to their counterparts on their respective websites. Program leaders also reported the same issue. Many of their elderly volunteers who make up the bulk of tax preparers had cut back their hours, retired, or died in the years since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a struggle getting people, and we're getting anxious because we're all getting older, said Pufal, who is 81. Dubuque Office of Shared Prosperity Director Anderson Sanchi, who collaborates with HACAP on the local VITA program, said the shortage of volunteers could complicate coordinating several targeted outreach days for English as a second language speakers. It's about being very intentional about reaching out to communities who haven't been reached and who might be missing out on these services, he said. If we don't have as many volunteers, there will be less people in our community we'll be able to support. Dubuque Vita still is accepting volunteers to complete the 20-hour tax preparer training before it begins service on February 1st. Moss also said Vita is looking at scheduling training sessions after that date to accept late volunteers. Let's get you certified, Moss said. We can absolutely use you somewhere. And now we share our opinion page and our view. Today it is the editorial point of view of the Dubuque Editorial Board. And it's a single piece. Dubuque County Supervisors must be efficient, transparent. The Dubuque County Board of Supervisors met this week with a new face, a new political dynamic, and after a two-to-one vote, a new meeting schedule. 
For the first time in its history, the board of three is now made up of two Republicans and one Democrat, with Republican Wayne Kenneker joining the board after being the top vote-getter in November's election for two supervisor seats. Democrat Ann McDonough won re-election, while Democrat Jay Wickham lost his seat. Republican Harley Potoff's seat was not on the ballot and he was re-elected as the county board chair on Tuesday. It was just 12 years ago when Republican Darrell Klein was sworn in, the first GOP supervisor since 1952. Breaking up a single-party board served the county well with a broader spectrum of viewpoints represented. Here's hoping that continues with this board's makeup. The change in schedule will see the board going back to twice-monthly meetings instead of weekly, a cadence that started during the pandemic. County Auditor Kevin Dragato, a Democrat whose office is charged with planning and monitoring the meetings, advocated in favor of the change. Dragato lamented the strain preparing for weekly meetings put on his staff. McDonough, for her part, voted against the change. She recalled meetings that went on all day when the board convened just twice a month. No one wants to see the return of the seven-hour meeting, but this approach is worth trying. County staff are advocating for it, and the post-pandemic workload should be on the decline. Supervisors should be able to make the schedule work. Part of being a good board member on any type of board is getting through decision-making effectively and efficiently with thorough but not circular discussions. Gergato is on the board to help facilitate that efficiently. Supervisors also voted to hold the meetings in the morning rather than rotating a daytime and evening schedule as it did previously with the twice-monthly schedule. This idea is a bit more concerning and bears close tracking to evaluate how it's working. Here, McDonough raised the valid concern that most people are at work during the day, and daytime meetings don't leave much allowance for public comment. She's not wrong. Access and transparency are real concerns. However, it's really only controversial issues that bring out citizens to meetings, county or otherwise. The Dubuque City Council and the Dubuque Community School Board meet in the evening, and citizen attendance is usually meager. Pothoff's compromise was to suggest that should a controversial issue be on the horizon, supervisors schedule a night meeting. That's a decent solution, provided the county is able to facilitate such a change logistically and foretell consistently when an issue will be of higher public interest. Perhaps citizens should have some option to weigh in on when an issue calls for an evening public hearing. Dubuque County supervisors hold the purse strings to millions of taxpayer dollars, so first and foremost should be serving the public with transparency. Supervisors must take care to evaluate the schedule change going forward to ensure citizens continue to have their voices heard. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. We're brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. 
This is Ken, and I've been reading from the Friday, January 6th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Now, we will turn to today's obituaries. Shirley R. Getzinger, Marion, Iowa. Shirley Rose Getzinger, 85, a longtime resident of Marion, Iowa, passed away Wednesday, January 4th at Anamosa Care Center in Anamosa. A vigil service will be held at 1.30 p.m. Sunday, January 8th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, where a visitation will follow until 4 p.m. Deacon Jeff Volker will officiate. Inurnment will take place at a later date at Latner Catholic Cemetery in Latnerville, Iowa. Shirley was born March 30, 1937, at home in Bernard, Iowa, one of eight children to Ralph and Amelda Kaiser Dresler. On April 4, 1959, she was united in marriage to Daryl Francis Getzinger at St. Patrick's Church in North Gary Owen. Shirley and Daryl were longtime members of St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion. In her earlier years, Shirley had worked at Amana Refrigeration and St. Luke's Hospital. She was also a former Avon representative for several years. Shirley enjoyed camping, fishing, and playing cards, especially euchre. She took pride in their yard and garden. Shirley loved spending time with her family and friends. She will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Please share a memory of Shirley at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Ronald C. Hughes, Stockton. Ronald C. Hughes, 85, of Stockton, died Tuesday, January 3rd. Visitation will be held from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at St. John Lutheran Church in rural Elizabeth, where services will follow. Internment will take place in the church cemetery. Herman Funeral Home of Stockton is assisting the family. James R. Wright, Galena. James R. Wright, 85, of Galena, died Tuesday, January 3rd. Arrangements are pending. Fernlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Doris C. Bildstein, Petersburg, Iowa. Doris C. Pasker Bildstein, 77, of Petersburg, that passed away Thursday, January 5th, at home, surrounded by her family. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville. Funeral Mass will be held at 1 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Saints Peter and Paul Catholic Church in Petersburg, with burial to be held at a later date. Reverend Gabriel Mensha and Reverend Herbert Pins will officiate. Doris was born on March 1, 1945, in Dyersville, the daughter of Clarence and Agnes Gall Pasker. 
Doris worked as a nursing technician at Mercy Hospital in Cedar Rapids before transferring to Mercy Hospital in Dubuque. She married James J. Bildstein August 5, 1967 at St. Francis Xavier Church in Dyersville. Together, they raised their family and farmed in the Petersburg area. She enjoyed spending time with family, traveling, reading, tending to her flowers, and volunteering at the hospital. In lieu of flowers, memorials are preferred to Saints Peter and Paul Parish, Camp Courageous, and Hospice of Dubuque. Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville is assisting the family, and information is available at www.kramerfuneral.com. Memorials may be sent to Kramer Funeral Home in care of the deceased, 750 12th Avenue Southwest, Dyersville, Iowa, 52040. Barbara A. Mahi, Barbara Ann Mahi, 78, of Dubuque, died Tuesday, January 3rd, at her home. A celebration of life will be from 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. Barbara was born December 8, 1944, in Des Moines, the daughter of Earl and Virginia Mildred Wright. On June 12, 1965, she married Louis Charles Chuck May in Grenada Hills, California. She was a homemaker. When her children were older, she worked as a secretary for Shell Oil Company while they lived in Houston. Barbara had a passion for interior design and enjoyed shopping for her home. She loved anything floral and English rose garden themed. Christmas was her favorite time of year, and that included watching Hallmark movies. Barbara loved her children and grandchildren beyond measure, and she will be missed by all who knew and loved her. In lieu of flowers, a memorial has been established. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences sent to the family by visiting Barbara's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Randy R. Weimerskirch, Clinton. Randy R. Weimerskirch, 42, of Clinton, died January 1st at Mercy One in Clinton. A celebration of Randy's life will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 10th at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Monday, January 9th at Carson's. Burial will be at Holy Rose Cemetery, Lamont, Iowa, at a later date. Online condolences and a full obituary at www.carsonandson.com. James R. Oglesby, Cuba City. James R. Oglesby, 87, of Cuba City, died Wednesday, January 4th. Visitation will be held from 1 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 8th, and from 9 to 10.15 a.m. Monday, January 9th, 
at St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church in Cuba City, where a massive Christian burial will follow at 10.30 a.m. Burial will take place in the church cemetery. Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cuba City is assisting the family. Bernard L. Jarrett, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Bernard L. Jarrett, 68, of Lancaster, died Wednesday, January 4th. Visitation will be held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Tuesday, January 10th at St. Clement Catholic Church in Lancaster, where a massive Christian burial will follow. Burial will be take, will take place in the church cemetery. Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory of Lancaster is assisting the family. Hunter C. Cropful, Dyersville. Hunter C. Cropful, 29, of Dyersville, died Monday, January 2nd. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, January 10th, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where services will follow. With the sadness of our passings comes the joy of our new arrivals, and we have a few for today's reading. Tuesday, January 3rd, Adams Stashi or Stash, Jason Adams and Katrina Stash of Dubuque, a boy at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital, Dubuque. Hess, Randy and Carly Hess of Dubuque, a boy at Finley. Wednesday, January 4th, Newhouse, Jason and Amanda Newhouse of Dubuque, a girl at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. Welcome aboard, little ones, and welcome to 2023. Uh, we have a couple of more pieces of tri-state news. Wisconsin woman accused of poisoning husband. From Argyle, Wisconsin. A woman accused of repeatedly poisoning her veterinarian husband with animal euthanasia drugs is charged in Lafayette County with attempted first-degree intentional homicide. Amanda Chapin, 50, now of Monroe, had a hearing this week in Lafayette County Circuit Court. She is being held on $10,000 bail, and her next court hearing is set for Thursday, January 12th. Authorities say she poisoned her 70-year-old husband, Gary Chapin of Argyle, three times during July and August by putting barbiturates in his coffee. According to a criminal complaint, the couple got married in March. Following the wedding, Amanda Chapin forged the signature of one of her husband's children on a power of attorney document, then demanded her husband amend his house deed so she would get the home if he died. The complaint said she poisoned her husband for the first time less than three weeks after the quitclaim deed on the house was authorized. The third time he drank the alleged poisoned coffee, in early August, he fell into a coma that lasted for four days, the complaint said. Blood work showed barbiturates in his system came from drugs that he used to euthanize animals. Gary Chapin's son subsequently filed a restraining order against Amanda Chapin on his father's behalf, and Gary Chapin has filed for divorce, according to online court records. 
According to the criminal complaint, Amanda Chapin violated the restraining order in September when she sent her husband a suicide note via email, writing that she had decided to kill herself because his children would destroy her. She repeatedly denied poisoning him. The only thing I am guilty of is loving you so much, said the note, which was included in the complaint. She survived the suicide attempt after paramedics took her to a local hospital. Gary Chapin filed for divorce the next day. Online court records indicate attorney Adam Witt is representing Amanda Chapin in the homicide case. The Wisconsin Bar Association's website indicates Witt serves as a public defender in Greene County. He didn't immediately respond to an email seeking comment. Union calls for ouster of Thompson Warden from Thompson, Illinois. The union representing correctional officers and staff at a Northwest Illinois prison are calling for the ouster of the facility's warden. The American Federation of Government Employees contends that Thomas Bergamy has failed to address allegations of sexual assaults and misconduct against employees at the Thompson Federal Prison. Press release issued by the union alleges that there were 321 incidents in 2022 of inmates engaging in sexual misconduct against staff at the high-security federal prison that houses about 800 prisoners. Our union has raised repeated concerns about this persistent pattern of abuse, but nothing has been done in response, said Everett Kelly, the union's national president, in the release. It states that the union has contacted the U.S. Department of Justice and members of the area's congressional delegation about the allegations. The union states that the incidents contribute to a difficulty recruiting and retaining staff at the prison. We continue now with some of our news in brief pieces. Man sentenced to 30 days in jail for dealing meth near school in Grant County. Coming from Cuba City. A man who was dealing drugs near a Grant County school was sentenced this week to 30 days in jail. Nicholas L. Friedrich, 37, of Platteville, this week pleaded guilty in Grant County Circuit Court to possession with intent to deliver methamphetamine on or near certain places, school. He must report to jail by February 24th and is eligible for work release, according to online court records. He also must serve three years of probation. As part of a plea deal, two charges were dismissed, possession of THC with intent to deliver and possession of drug paraphernalia. Friedrich was arrested in July after Cuba City Police reported executing a search warrant along with the Grant County Sheriff's Department at the residence of Laura L. Harmon, 41, at 309 West Roosevelt Street in Cuba City. She subsequently pleaded guilty to possession of THC and possession of drug paraphernalia and was sentenced to two years of probation. Dubuque County Conservation planning to host two illuminated night hikes. Dubuque County Conservation will host a pair of free night hikes along illuminated trails. 
An Illuminate the Night hike will be held from 5.30 to 7 p.m. January 20th at New Wine Park, 15971 New Wine Park Lane in rural New Vienna. An approximately one-mile loop of trail will be illuminated. The trail includes hills. Participants should wear yak tracks or snowshoes depending upon snow depth. Dogs are allowed on a leash. Register for the hike, and a second hike is scheduled for 5.30 to 7 p.m. February 3rd at Finley's Landing, 24709 Finley's Landing Road in rural Sherrill. And both of these have hard um, websites. The first one for the New Wine Park is HTTPS forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash 3jgxt07 and the other one https forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash 3zebnaf I really wish they would put phone numbers in here for those of you that might have friends and family that are interested. But I think if you were to contact the Dubuque County Conservation Office, a phone number for that might be able to be found. They could help you out. Two people injured when driver strikes pair of parked vehicles in Dubuque. Police said two people were injured when a driver crashed into two parked vehicles Wednesday in Dubuque. Royal D. Hughes, 76, and passenger Joyce M. Hughes, 76, both of Dubuque, were taken by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment, according to Dubuque Police. The crash occurred at about 12.15 p.m. Wednesday on Tomahawk Drive. Police said Royal Hughes was driving east when he lost control of his vehicle and struck the parked vehicles. Royal Hughes was cited with failure to maintain control of his vehicle. One person hurt when vehicle strikes tree in Lafayette County. This comes from Belmont. One person was injured Wednesday when a vehicle struck a tree in Lafayette County. Caitlin Johnson, 22, of Darlington, was taken to a hospital for treatment of non-life-threatening injuries, according to the Lafayette County Sheriff's Department. The crash occurred at about 5.10 p.m. Wednesday on Lafayette County XX in Belmont Township. A press release states that Johnson was driving when she lost control of her vehicle, which left the roadway and struck a tree. Organizers seek donations for a proposed Guttenberg dog park from Guttenberg. Organizers seek donations for a proposed 25,000 square foot dog park in Guttenberg. The estimated cost of the park is $15,500, according to an online announcement by Guttenberg Chamber of Commerce. The site of the park would be adjacent to the North Soccer Field on Marina Lane, according to the announcement. Tax-deductible donations for the park can be mailed to the City of Guttenberg, P.O. Box 580, Guttenberg, Iowa, 52052. Donations of $250 or more would be recognized at the park. And now we turn to our weekend buzz. The things to do on this first weekend of January. The making of a portrait. Gallery talk and demonstration. Saturday, Dubuque Museum of Art, 701 Locust Street. 
1.30 to 2.30 p.m., Dubuque Camera Club members will discuss the techniques and pieces in their exhibition, Portraits. Following the talk, audience members can have their photograph taken in a style inspired by Therese Mulgrew's Intimate Exchange paintings. Admission free with general museum admission. More information about the event, www.dbqart.org. Christmas in Ukraine, a fundraiser. Saturday, Convivium Urban Farmstead, 2811 Jackson. 7 to 9 p.m., a 12-course vegetarian holiday feast, cooking demonstration, live music, and more, benefiting the Ukrainian Society of Eastern Iowa. According to organizers, $10 of every ticket sold will provide humanitarian aid and medical supplies directly to citizens and military personnel in Ukraine. Admission is 45 to 67.50 per person. Tickets are available at www.tinyurl.com forward slash convivium farmstead or at 563-557-2900. Thrifty Affair Garage Sale, Sunday, Dubuque County Fairgrounds, 14569 Old Highway Road. 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., an indoor garage sale will with baby and kids' clothes, toys, home goods, and antiques. Admission is a dollar a person. For more information, go to www.facebook.com forward slash Jodian KT. Mines of Spain Winter Program Series Lead Mining and Mines. Sunday, Mines of Spain State Recreation Area, 8991 Bellevue Heights Road. Noon. Rudy Prusko will lead a free program on the history of zinc and lead mining and smelting in the current site. All programs are free to all ages. For information, call 563-556-0620. Well, that brings us to the end of our first Friday reading. This has been IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. We bring you all kinds of great programming, not just the melodious voices of me and fellow readers. But this has been Ken, and I have been reading from the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Friday, January the 6th. And you'll hear again from me next Friday. So tune in all this all this week, Monday through Friday. We have the TH on, on the air. And there's other programs you can tune into with your Iris radio and such. So find other good things to listen to when it's cold and blustery out there these January days. So take care, wrap up, enjoy the week and, and the week ahead. So long.